Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, January the 4th, 2024, a new year. And uh, I wonder whether 2024 is going to be the I year, the year of impeachment. It always seems as if it started that way. Uh, Joe Biden's Homeland Security chief apparently is facing impeachment. Um, meanwhile, uh, Biden himself uh, is, um, is about to be impeached apparently by the House. And Donald Trump, meanwhile, has suggested in his quote-unquote, ambitious arguments that uh, he is immune from impeachment. One man who's all too familiar with the I-word is my guest today, Michael J. Gerhardt. Um, he's the author of many scholarly books about impeachment, including federal impeachment, impeachment, what uh, everyone needs to know, and a new book out uh, this week or next week, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen. Michael is joining us from Chapel Hill, where he teaches. Michael, um, is uh, is twenty twenty four going to be the year where we become sick and tired of hearing this word impeachment? I think it will be the year in which people get uh, tired of hearing about impeachment, as you just said. I think that's actually part of the point of going after the Secretary of Homeland Security and President Biden is to make people sick of impeachment uh, so that it may become a nullity, uh, not be a serious mechanism. Let's say for um, uh, another president, a Republican, who might take office and then not have to worry about impeachment after this year. And of course, we won't mention the name of that president who might take office. Um, some people will argue, having heard that, that you're just... Uh, a stooge for the for the Democrats is the problem with this overuse over application of impeachment. Is it a Republican problem or is it a broader political one? I think it's both of those. I, I think Republicans right now are doing their best to rob impeachment of legitimacy, um, but at the same time, we have serious division uh, in our country over politics. And so um, we sometimes use the word tribalism to, des to describe how members of Congress perform. Um, they basically hate each other. Uh, there's no common ground. And that, that problem, that political problem, uh, actually opens the door for the abuse of impeachment, which I think we're now witnessing. So let's get to the heart of it, the linguistic heart, at least. Uh, to prepare for this, I... I looked up some definitions, one on the website of the U.S. Senate. What in your mind does this word mean, both etymologically and, of course, in legal and political terms? Impeachment is a, is a term that we borrow from the, the British, um, and it's been used in England dating back to the uh, early 1200s, if not before. Um, impeachment is a word that may describe the entire process for holding certain officials accountable and removing them from office. 
Impeachment may also be used specifically to refer to the power of the House of Representatives to impeach someone. We understand that um, colloquially as uh, similar to indicting someone, charging somebody formally with misconduct. And then after the House impeaches someone, the U.S. Constitution provides that the Senate holds a trial for that person. You wrote an interesting piece, and I want to come to Nixon later in this conversation uh, for CNN uh, in December of last year about uh, impeachment changing since Nixon's resignation. But what did the founders, it would go back way before Richard Nixon was indicted, uh, impeached, uh, what did the founders mean by impeachment and, and what were they trying to do? I think one of the main things they were trying to do was to establish a, a country that was devoted to the principle that no one is above the law. In the Declaration of Independence, uh, the founders generation listed 27 articles of impeachment against the king. The king was the only person in all of England who was not, not subject to impeachment and not subject to the rule of law. And the framers made very clear in the declaration and later that they weren't uh, going to replicate that system, but instead have a system in which the highest ranking official would be subject to a sanction if that person committed serious misconduct. And so impeachment was designed as a special unique mechanism for holding presidents accountable and other high ranking officials accountable for their abuse of power or misconduct. Did the founders understand that there was something absurd about them impeaching a king from another, well, I guess it wasn't really another system, but using a legal code to undermine the rights of monarchy? I, I think the framers uh, chose to list those articles of impeachment against the king to underscore one of the fundamental differences they had with the British monarchy. And that was the British monarchy was not subject to the rule of law. Um, the the uh, revolutionary generation believed that they were breaking away from a corrupt system and tried to establish a system in which every official is accountable. And our constitution has all sorts of checks and balances to ensure that no one branch is all powerful, but instead the branches balance each other out. Yeah, it, I hadn't really thought about it before. I grew up in England and spent most of my life though in the US. Growing up in England, no one ever uses the word impeachment. Does it rely on the concept of the rule of law? Not that the ideal or the idea of the rule of law doesn't exist in the in the UK, but it's a different kind of political and legalistic system, isn't it? Yes. I mean, of course, you may understand that system better than I do, but... Um, Probably not, in, actually. Mark. But in, in the British system, of course, Parliament wields the power of impeachment. Right. And in its original form in England, uh, a majority of each uh, chamber of parliament uh, wielded authority. Um, that just meant that you needed a, a majority in the House of Commons, a majority in the House of Lords, and any punishment could be imposed for someone who had been impeached, even death. Uh, the framers rejected that whole system. They only allow for two sanctions to be used in the impeachment process, removal and disqualification. No one is subject to um, 
putting their life or limb in jeopardy. Uh, there's no criminal punishment as a result of impeachment in the United States. So it has a unique purpose and very unique sanctions. We are speaking with uh, America's leading authority on impeachment, Michael J. Gerhardt. He's the author of a new book, The Law of Presidential Impeachment. Michael, who was the first U.S. president to be impeached? Andrew Johnson. And this was uh, roughly speaking in the middle of the 19th century. Um, as uh, I think most of us will recall, um, Andrew Johnson was uh, Abraham Lincoln's Second vice Unfortunately, president. Unfortunately, Michael, I don't think most of us will recall this. Firstly, <laughs> we're too old, and secondly, because we're not very well educated. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to hope As, that... Uh, uh, probably your students will recall this, but very few others. <laughs> um, yes, those of us who sort of uh, go into the weeds on impeachment. Um, but Andrew Johnson uh, ascended to the presidency because Abraham Lincoln was killed. And Andrew Johnson was enormously unpopular. Uh, pretty much everyone hated him. And he responded in kind. He, he kind of responded with anger and profanity. And finally, um, the friction or tension between him and Congress uh, at the time, in the late 1860s, came to a head and Congress impeached, or the, I should say the House impeached Andrew Johnson for violating one of its laws, something called the Tenure and Office Act. And then the matter went to the Senate for a trial and Johnson escaped removal by a single vote. So Johnson was the first president to face a serious threat of impeachment. Um, but uh, one of the lessons of Johnson's ordeal uh, in impeachment was that even an unpopular president may not be ultimately removable um, unless you can persuade enough members of the Senate, you need at least two thirds to vote to convict and remove. And we've never had a president yet who's been convicted and removed from office by the Senate. Michael, it seems as if there were two ways to, certainly in the 19th century, to remove American presidents. One was, well, I guess there's three, you can vote them out as well. One was impeachment, which, as you say, never happened. Uh, the second was assassination, violence, which, of course, resulted in Lincoln's removal. Is there... In, in legalistic terms, is there something violent about this idea or ideal of impeachment? I actually think there's um, a great deal of nonviolence in this concept. Impeachment was created in part to avoid or prevent that violent um, act of assassinating the president. Even at one point in the convention, Benjamin Franklin said, well, otherwise, um, what's going to happen? I'm paraphrasing. It would, you know, will the president be assassinated? Um, and in our system, again, the rule of law is king. And the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And that provides this mechanism of impeachment to be able to hold presidents accountable, especially for abuses of power that are not redressable uh, through civil or criminal law. So impeachment remains the primary, if not only, mechanism for uh, holding somebody accountable for certain abuses of power. Michael, um, I hadn't really thought about this before, but perhaps it suggests why so many American presidents have legal training and, and, and had careers before politics as presidents. In fact, uh, sorry, as lawyers, uh, both uh, Nixon and, and Clinton, both uh, at least uh, who were uh, uh, impeached, if not successfully, were both 
lawyers. To what extent is all this founded on a kind of fetishization of law, of law being this absolutely objective and reliable um, source for justice, which of course uh, is a very arguable, very uh, debatable uh, assumption? I, I think it rests heavily on that. Um, the, the framers were children of the Enlightenment, and that meant that they believed in sort of the liberating force of knowledge, uh, that more information and education would enlighten and enrich people. And they thought that participating in um, the civil or civic life of the nation was going to be ennobling uh, for Americans. So they had these ideals. Um, and of course, uh, there's oftentimes a gap between an ideal and how it actually uh, works on the ground. I wonder if the idealism of the framers um, has been inherited by scholars like you into an ideal of citizenship. Your book is entitled The Law of Presidential Impeachment, a guide for the engaged citizen rather than a guide for the engaged politician. What was the response mostly of citizens in America, particularly citizens who were able to vote in 19th and indeed much of 20th century American history, of course, not all Americans could vote. Well, actually, the impeachment process is an exception to the electoral. Um, but um, the framers also distrusted the people. Um, almost everything they put into the Constitution was meant to filter out uh, the people uh, to put representatives and senators in um, in place of the people and representatives and particularly senators were thought to be able to uh, be more responsible, perhaps better educated, make uh, wiser decisions. Now, whether or not that's true, of course, is another question. But the framers generation uh, was very distrustful of people because the framers thought people were largely uneducated and could be easily manipulated. However, uh, as time went on, particularly as, as we enter into the 20th century, the Constitution changed. Um, before the 20th century, the House of Representatives um, was the only part of Congress that was directly elected by the people. But in the early part of the 20th century, the Senate, through a constitutional amendment, um, was rearranged so that senators were directly elected by the people. And suddenly, uh, impeachment itself began to change because the members of Congress were much more attentive to public opinion than they had ever been before. Yeah, I wonder perhaps, uh, Michael, whether uh, the subtitle of your book should be The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Disengaged Citizen, because <laughs> maybe the problem is citizens are, are too engaged uh, these days. Maybe that's a rather cynical view or rather British view. Anyway, uh, we are speaking with Michael J. Gerhardt, the author of The Law of Presidential Impeachment. He is America's leading authority on impeachment. Whenever impeachment comes up, Michael is the guy to call and we're talking impeachment today. I want to remind everyone that quality guests like Michael Gerhardt are brought to you in part by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. Uh, going to run a short feature on liberties, and then we'll be back with Michael to talk 
about the history of impeachment in 20th and 21st century America. So don't go away, anyone. If you go away, we'll impeach you. <laughs> Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. All our guests, including Michael Gerhardt, are given complimentary um, annual subscriptions to Liberties. I'm going to enjoy it a great deal. Uh, Michael, when you think of the word uh, impeachment, it suggests sweetness like peach. And yet the word itself is is rather sour, isn't it? What is its etymology? Who came up with the word, do you know? Well, the, the British. Um, and I think its etymology, um, of course, is a little bit odd. Um, it goes back, if you sort of trace it all the way back, it's um, uh, really um, relates to pirates. Um, and um, And I'm not entirely sure how they got from pirates to impeachment, um, but that's the origin. Uh, perhaps the idea was, um, you know, people who break the law or abuse power are like pirates, um, and we need to bring them um, to account. Maybe we need to squeeze them to make peach juice. So you talked about Johnson in the 19th century. Is the next chapter in the history of impeachment, Nixon, or, or, or were there important events between uh, Johnson and Nixon? There are not as many important events that relate to impeachment during that period of time. So there had been over 100 years between Andrew Johnson and Richard Nixon, uh, underscoring the rarity of presidential impeachment. Um, and Nixon became subject to impeachment, but only after several months of investigation by the House, by the Senate, and a special prosecutor, then Congress authorized an impeachment inquiry, and the House Judiciary Committee approved three articles of impeachment against Nixon shortly before his resignation. I want to talk a little bit more about Nixon in a second, but there was the intense hostility to FDR amongst conservatives in the 1930s and 40s. Did it ever, and, and, and FDR in his own way, I guess, some some of his critics at least would argue, attempted a kind of constitutional coup with the Supreme Court, which he lost. Were there ever was there ever talk or, or efforts to impeach FDR? No serious efforts. By happy coincidence, I I've, I've just finished a um, biography of FDR, um, which is out later this year as well. Um, and pe there were people who were becoming disenchanted with uh, FDR the longer he served as president. But there was no serious talk or really any meaningful talk at all about impeachment uh, of FDR. I think the, the prevailing sense was that people were, were going to try to beat him in the polls. One other reason, I guess, is because the Republicans were so weak in Congress that even if they'd wanted to impeach him, they wouldn't have had the votes. They would not have had the votes. Democrats' patience and tolerance of FDR sort of dissipated over time. Um, but uh, FDR was an immensely popular politician. He was a populist and he won tremendous victories, uh, certainly in his first two. 
if not three runs for the presidency. Um, and so that popularity uh, of FDR translated into very strong uh, support in Congress. And that provides a protection or safeguard against impeachment. When you have divided government, for example, like we have now, that creates a, a better possibility for something like impeachment. And would it be fair to call impeachment the last resort? Uh, I mean, my the, my understanding, we've done some shows on Nixon. He was he resigned because of the threat of impeachment, and 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 much of that threat came from critics of his within his own party. So there was a degree of nobility about that narrative. Is there any truth to that? Is this the best model, the best argument in favor of impeachment that it's never actually activated? It forces. Uh, a man like Nixon out of office to resign rather than have to go through the humiliation of being impeached? I, I think the answer is yes. I think the Nixon case is about as close to a paradigm as we can find. It's probably an example of impeachment working in coordination with other mechanisms um, to produce the result that it did. Um, most people look back at that time, certainly most scholars and historians, look back at that time and think that's an example of the constitution working. But as you just said, that Nixon example only works as a model if presidents are willing to resign, if they face the prospect of serious impeachment. And it's become very clear in the years after Nixon that presidents have no interest in resigning. Uh, resignation is not in Bill Clinton's DNA. It's not in Donald Trump's DNA. I doubt it's in Joe Biden's DNA. And so the Nixon example kind of fades away because um, the president's not going to do the opposition's work for them. Instead, the opposition will have to mount a credible case with evidence in both the House and the Senate. Democrats might listen uh, to this, Michael, and say it's absurd to compare Clinton, Trump, and Biden. The, the cases against, certainly against Biden and even Clinton were different from Trump. What do you make of the Clinton episode? Is it a, a stain, both literally and metaphorically? Of course, we remember Philip Roth's book on this. Was it a, a, a stain on democracy? Did it undermine the very idea of, 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 of impeachment because of its rather tawdry subject? I don't think so, but I, but I think you're also correct that um, the Clinton Trump and Nixon cases are really all different uh, than each other. And, um, and so we've got to be careful about how we go about comparing them. With Bill Clinton, um, there was an investigation. It was, it was conducted by the independent counsel, Ken Starr, in his office. They produced a several hundred page document, which listed all sorts of salacious material, including uh, possible impeachment charges against Bill Clinton. Based on that report, the House of Representatives impeached Clinton. Now, one issue that came up at that time was whether or not the House ought to do its own investigation and not just rely on Starr's report, because Starr's report was one-sided. It was a prosecutor presenting only what he thought should be presented. Um, by the time the matter came to the Senate, uh, things were a little different in that uh, there had been a little more evidence produced um, that went a little beyond the Star Report. And Clinton had uh, actually hurt himself by lying under oath in a video 
So no one had to make that up. Uh, and then there were other witnesses that suggested he tried to obstruct justice. So committing perjury and obstruction of justice, those are very serious charges against a president. Um, and I think that the thing that made Clinton a harder case is that at least the perjury part seemed to be about something not central to democracy, but about a personal failing. And there were many people that argued at the time uh, that wasn't serious enough to, uh, to be the kind of misconduct that ought to justify impeachment. Do you think Bill Clinton should have walked? I mean, uh, given the case against him, given that it was clear that he lied? I, I don't think so. Uh, but to kind of follow up on the other point you, you were making earlier, even though Clinton was acquitted in the Senate, and even though Trump was twice acquitted in the Senate, the impeachment of a president is a stain. It's an indelible stain. And so Bill Clinton is not happy um, that he got impeached. It's going to be in the first line of his obituary. It's going, people are going to remember that more than two thirds of the Senate delivered speeches about Clinton that condemned his misbehavior. Now, Trump was acquitted both times, but a majority of the Senate in both cases um, delivered speeches condemning his uh, misconduct. Yeah, the, the idea of the indelible stain, of course, I think probably works both for, for Clinton and Trump. Um, Clinton, uh, Trump, though, seems to be pretty critical, uh, Michael, if, if, if we're to give him the credit of having a coherent philosophy. He seems to have an almost Marxist or Leninist view of the state as reflecting the interests of the dominant class which is manifested in its legal establishment. And, and in that sense, then for him, for better or worse, the idea of impeachment lacks any kind of credit. In other words, Trump entirely rejects the notion of, of the law as this enlightened, objective thing. Is there some truth to that, you think? And certainly Bill Clinton, with his law degree from Yale and all the rest of it, didn't take that position. I, I agree. I think that um, uh, Trump um, has a very different view of the rule of law than Clinton. I would describe Trump more uh, like he has described himself. Um, he's, used, he's used words and terms that suggest he has an affinity for dictatorship. Uh, and one common theme in what Trump puts forward is there's no way to hold him accountable. Um, he maintains he's immune to any kind of legal process, civil or criminal. He's certainly trying to argue that now as he faces more than 90 felony indictments. Um, and Trump wants to do away with the one mechanism, um, uh, impeachment, that otherwise had stained his presidency by trying to stain Joe Biden again. Incidentally, we've, we've been here before. That's what happened in 2019 when Trump tried to get the president of Ukraine to issue a kind of false narrative that they were opening an investigation uh, to investigate whether or not Biden committed any crime. Trump made clear it didn't matter that there would be an investigation. He just wanted the announcement to hurt Biden. So for Trump, I don't think the rule of law means anything. Um, I would describe his attitude towards government as being much more monarchical um, and perhaps tyrannical. Um, I don't think he 
wants to share power with anyone. Um, instead, I think he wants all that power for himself. It's a mock tyranny, though. I don't think he has the energy or the intelligence or even the ambition to be a real tyrant. I wonder whether the corruption of the, the legal system in America also reflects this. I mean, you know that Trump has no respect for the law. He spent his life in and out of courts um, leveraging the law to his own benefit. So in an odd kind of way there's no reason why he should have any respect for the law because he's always bent it to his own interests. Well, he certainly always tried to bend it to his own interests. And generally successfully. Yes, but again, not always successfully. Take, for example, the Gene Carroll defamation case in which Trump has been found liable and damages have been assessed. Um, and I don't think there's anything Trump can do to eradicate that. Um, other than perhaps not pay her, which, by the way, is a violation of the law. Um, but I think that uh, you're also probably right that Trump talks a tough game. He likes to sort of um, talk, talk like the dictators he sometimes seems to admire. Um, but one thing that keeps him from realizing um, his rhetoric is that there are these checks and balances in the Constitution that make it difficult, if not impossible, for him to always get his way as president. You talked about an indelible stain. Uh, is the stain when it comes to the, the Trump uh, uh, impeachments, um, not so much on Trump, I mean, he's by definition stained, but on uh, Congress and the House of Representatives, which, uh, which didn't take its constitutional responsibility and impeach him? I think the, the House um, uh, uh, certainly has to take responsibility for what it both did and didn't do. Um, I think uh, that's part of the constitutional design. Um, the, the, the framers put together a system in which members of Congress would be accountable for what they did or didn't do. Um, and right now, it appears that Republican leaders in Congress, all of whom have endorsed Trump again for the presidency, um, basically look the other way when Trump is accused of any kind of wrongdoing, or they pretend that he hasn't committed any wrongdoing, um, but they then see wrongdoing virtually in everything Joe Biden does. That tells me there's no principle involved. There's only partisanship. And I think what we aspire to is a system in which if we take away the name of the president, take away his political party, and then ask, okay, we don't know who the person is or what party, but the president has done X and Y. How do we assess that? That's a more responsible way to go about determining whether or not impeachment is appropriate or not. That's the ideal way. But in reality, Michael, um, it, are we ever going to get back to it? I mean, the, 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 the title of your book is The Law of Presidential Impeachment. Judging from the Clinton episode and certainly from the Trump episode, the real law of presidential impeachment is there is no moral law. It's a law of self-interest, a law of political interest. One party will vote to impeach presidents from another party and vice versa. How do we get back to the ideals of the, uh, the founders? Well, I think we get back to those ideals if the American people want to get back to those ideals. I think Congress 
does what it does because it, its constituents um, allow them to do that. Um, and one reason why the book is sort of, uh, I guess, aimed at the so-called engaged citizen is simply to sort of underscore the importance of the citizenry um, as the ultimate sort of decision makers on what kind of culture they want. Do they want a legal culture, a political culture in which uh, leaders just break the law with abandon? Or do they want a different kind of system? Do they want the kind of system that's reflected in the Constitution? Not a perfect document by any means, but perhaps better than a lot of other alternatives. Um, that Those questions are going to be answered by the American people, not by our leaders. Which is a way of dodging the question, I always think. Um, will this impeachment of Biden, which seems to me to be purely theatrical and absurd theater at that, could this be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of forcing America to wake up to the reality or just make the idea of impeachment increasingly absurd and irrelevant? Well, the objective, I think, is to make the idea of impeachment increasingly absurd and irrelevant. Um, uh, that, that idea goes along with the efforts of a number of uh, leaders over the last uh, decades who have really undermined Americans' confidence in institutions. The institutions, whether it's higher education, whether it's Congress, whether it's the media. Um, and I think um, there, are very, there are people that want to see the whole thing burned down. Um, and then there are other people who don't. And every presidential election, and for that matter, every impeachment, is a test of which of those attitudes will prevail. But now you're sounding like a Democrat, uh, big D, uh, <laughs> Michael. Uh, more than 50% of Republicans at least seem to want to elect Trump. Is there an argument that the state or, or, or the legal system has somehow appropriated the state and that there needs to be a, I don't know, some sort of constitutional uh, call to arms? Uh, or, or, or is it simply the, 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 the self-interest of what seems to be charlatans like, uh, self-interested charlatans like Donald Trump? Well, I think that the law is the framework within which institutions are supposed to operate. So um, the law is part of what makes the state possible. Um, and it's also part of what makes uh, the people who work in the state accountable. Um, now, the law is not perfect, but nothing is perfect. And I don't think it's speaking as much as a, as a uh, Democrat as, as it is a constitutionalist. Um, you know, I'm devoted to the American Constitution, for better or worse. And I think that that's our system of government. Uh, as Lincoln pointed out, um, others had too, um, emphasizing government for the people and by the people. Um, and Lincoln's reminding us that it's the people that will ultimately um, de uh, uh, define the culture and ultimately define um, the, uh, the, the framework and the circumstances under which leaders operate. 
That's all very well, but the idea of the engaged citizen now is a citizen on social media wanders around with cameras and points them at people they don't like. What happens if the law is indeed made to be absurd in the way that Donald Trump seems to want it to become? Just a um, well, then we have chaos. A, a vehicle for his own self-interest. Th then what? What becomes of American democracy? Well, uh, it, it just becomes chaos, anarchy, um, and. Again, um, some people may want that. Um, I don't know that most people want that, but we'll see. Um, and um, there's probably little good that will come out of chaos and anarchy. For example, think about January 6th, people running through the Capitol, destroying things um, and defacing things. I'm not sure what good came of that. Some people might argue, and I'm probably not one of them, that these were engaged citizens who believed that some great injustice had been committed. Well, that's not how we deal with grave injustices. It's more, I mean, that, uh, I think that demonstration was more like a spoiled child banging a table and throwing things around rather than what I would hope an engaged citizen would do, which is to engage in a serious discussion uh, and a meaningful dialogue. Yeah, I'm not sure how much serious discussion, meaningful dialogue there is in America on any side in 2024. Finally, um, Michael, if uh, if Donald Trump is re-elected in November 2024 and becomes president once again, what happens to the previous Im impeachment uh, inquiries? And, and is it pretty inevitable that if, if Congress remains democratic, or certainly the Senate and maybe even the House becomes democratic, that he'll once again be impeached and we'll get to a, a, final, uh, a final drama in this nonsense? I don't know. I mean, what you say is entirely possible. Um, I think that you know, Trump has campaigned in part on the idea that he's going to be an unrestrained Trump, whatever that means. Yeah, I'm not um, sure if he was ever very restrained. Right. And so one might presume that if an unrestrained Trump would somehow, let's say, have brushes with the law uh, or defy the Constitution, um, if that were to happen, we have to ask ourselves a very simple question. What's, what's the safeguard against that? Um, and one of those safeguards is supposed to be impeachment.